pressure makes diamonds. But not always. In Graham Greene's book, uh, The Power and the Glory, the pressure from the Mexican government in the 1920s on Roman Catholic priests didn't end up producing a diamond for at least one of those priests, at least not at first. In the wake of this uh, Mexican revolution, the government took a very negative view of the Roman Catholic Church. They, they viewed them as outsiders who didn't really care about the people. And that was very, very important for the people who won the revolution, that they cared about the Mexican people. So in one particular Mexican state, that negativity actually developed into this severe persecution where they would take priests and they would arrest them and they would even shoot them if those priests didn't recant and marry. And that's what Graham Greene's book is all about. And in the, in the book, he never actually names this priest. This nameless priest goes running around, hiding from the authorities throughout the book. But it's very clear in the book, he's not a good priest. He hadn't even stayed here in this difficult state for good reasons. It just kind of happened, he explains. He didn't take the danger seriously at first. He just kind of thought, well, maybe it's going to get better. And so he stayed. He stuck around. So while others fled, he just continued to, to be there. It wasn't until he realized he was the only priest there that things really took a downward turn. At first, he says in his pride, he thought he was a good priest to have stayed there. But without the structure, without anyone overseeing him, he starts to get careless, starts to drink, starts to make his own rules. He stops doing any of his religious observances. And, and then one day in this lonely, drunken state, he ends up engendering a child. This is the priest that they have there. So pressure does not always produce diamonds. Sometimes it just ends up crushing something into a fine dust. This whiskey priest, as he's called, in the book, with this illegitimate child, he's evidence that pressure doesn't always make us more and more into better people, better things. What it did for this priest is it kind of stripped away the facade, showed him what he really was the whole time. And that's what it would do to me too. If I thought I was a good pastor, that's what it would do. Truth is, what, what Paul says in, in Romans 7, 18 is true of me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The good in me and in any Christian is the Spirit. It's just like Jesus said, there is only one who is good. It means God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the only one who is good. So if I were to rely on myself in difficulty... I'm pretty sure the same stuff would come out. Just like this, this whiskey priest. So what do we do when, when pressure does come? Do we run from it? Do we try to hide from it? Is that, is that the application? No, that, that's, that's equally a problem. Jesus said, we mentioned last week, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-preservation is not the answer to a difficult situation. The expectation we saw last week that we should have as Christians is a cross. So what do we do when we experience that cross? 
We look to God. It's a Sunday school answer, right? How do we do that? That's the right answer. How do we do that? The passage this morning shows us God's response to his people's difficulty. And when it shows that, it actually helps us see what we should do, how we do look to God like we're supposed to. So in this passage, there's, there's two realities that we look to for stability when difficulty comes. We look to the consistency of God's message and the continuity of his method. The consistency of God's message and the continuity of God's method. So those two realities, they'll keep us from pridefully depending on ourselves. They will help us look to God when difficulty comes. So you can turn to Exodus chapter 6, if you haven't already, on page 45 again in the Bible there in the pew. Exodus 6. And we're going to look first of all at the consistency of God's message in verses 2 through 12. And there's three parts to that message. We're going to hear about God's past, his promises, and his plan. And so before we do that, though, before we look at this, these three parts, I want you to notice a, a, phrase, or a statement, really, that's repeated throughout these verses. In verse 2 and 6 and 7 and 8, you see the words, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So there's something solemn about this message, or, th- yeah, the statement that Moses gives here. Something official about it. This is the way that a king would speak in the ancient world. So you remember that question from Pharaoh, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord's answering that question. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And he's giving an official announcement to Moses and through Moses to Israel. And so he begins... God begins by reminding Moses of what he'd already done in the past. And so he first mentions this appearance to the patriarchs. The God of Israel is the God of their fathers. He says in verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now the context shows that that statement, that overall statement, is a positive statement. So you can read the second part, and it almost sounds like it's, it's negating something. But in no way is God disconnecting himself from the patriarchs. So whatever he's doing, he's not doing that. He's doing the opposite of that. And if we took the second half of that statement as it's traditionally rendered, it sounds like the Lord's saying his name, Yahweh, he he didn't actually give to the patriarchs. He never told them his name was Yahweh, which seems to be a contradiction of Genesis 15, 7, where the Lord tells Abraham, Abram at the time, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. A statement very similar to the one he's making here to Israel. And it's the same thing with Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. As Jacob's leaving the promised land, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land to which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Again, very, very similar to the statement being made here to Israel, to Moses and then to Israel. And you can even see in verse 4 how he's going to mention the promise of land, just like he did with Abram and Jacob. So previously, 
I had imagined because of Exodus 6-3 that, that in these places in Genesis, what, what was happening is Moses was kind of, instead of saying uh, the actual title that God gave to the patriarchs, he kind of replaces it with Yahweh so that the people reading it would be able to make the connection. That's what I imagine based on chapter 6 and verse 3 here in Exodus. The problem is when you read that in Genesis, it really sounds like this is what God is actually saying to them. He's giving them his name. So what's going on in Exodus 6.3? The first part is saying that the patriarchs saw God to be El Shaddai. To the patriarchs, that's who God was. He was El Shaddai. He was God Almighty. That's how they refer to him. Isaac calls God El Shaddai, God Almighty, in Genesis 28.3. Jacob does the same thing in Genesis 48.3. And that's how God describes himself on a, on a few different occasions. He tells Abram, soon to be Abraham, in Genesis 17.1. The text reads, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I am El Shaddai. So that's, that's the common terminology. That's the way that they thought of the Lord. The second half of the verse doesn't have to be a statement. It could actually be translated as a question. It could be translated, but with respect to my name, Yahweh, did I not make myself known? Whereas I did actually make myself known to them as that. So the point that he's making is that God did make himself known to the patriarchs. And it seems like he's saying that he did, as he did in Genesis uh, 28 and Genesis 15, he did actually use his name Yahweh. Even if that's not the name that they stuck with, even if that's not the way that they referred to him, he did actually refer to himself as the same name. At the end of the day, whatever's going on with that second part, his point is that he is the same God of the forefathers, same one who appeared to them. And then he says, and that's really important really for what he says next. He says in verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. He established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was the land of Canaan, the land that he promised to give them. And he says, Now I have also heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. This is really what he said already in the burning bush encounter there in Exodus 3. He's aware of what's happening to his people. He even knows about this new additional burden that they're going through. And he is going to put that covenant into, into action. He's going to do what he said. That's the idea of remembering his covenant. He hasn't forgotten it. He's just, he's ready to do something about it. He's ready to give them the land of Canaan. In order to give them the land of Canaan, he has to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. It's a necessary step to keep his promise. So he's ready to keep his promises. So basically, this is what he's already done for the patriarchs he's, and for Israel. Really. He's appeared to the patriarchs. He gave them a promise to give them the land. He's heard Israel's cry now, and he is ready to take action. He's remembered his covenant. And so based on that past action, now God reminds Moses of his promise. And this is what Moses is supposed to announce to the people. It's a sevenfold promise. And it's punctuated at the beginning and the end with this, this statement, I am the Lord. It's the way he begins, the way he ends. And so he promises, one, I will bring you out from under the, the burdens of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Four, I will take you to be my people. 
Five, I will be your God. Six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And seven, I will give it to you for a possession. So the, the first three promises, they have to do with salvation. Second two have to do with their relationship with God. And then the final two promises speak about their possession of the land. So look at how he says he's going to save them. This is his promise. He's going to bring them out so that they're no longer under this torment, under this hard labor that the Egyptians have been forcing on them. And then he says he's going to snatch them away. That was that same aggressive terminology for rescue that he used at the burning bush. And then the last description, really the other two, that's, that's things that we had, had clearly heard. The third description here of his rescue is where he kind of goes into maybe a little bit more detail. He adds a little bit when he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So that word for redemption, it's not the, the regular word that you'd use to talk about basically purchasing a slave from a master. This is a word that has to do with a person who's related to somebody in trouble, who has an obligation to help them. And so you have in the Bible these kinsmen redeemers. Most famous one we know of is who? Boaz, right? He's the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And and in that circumstance, what's going on there is that you could have somebody in Israel who gets in trouble financially. And what you did in the the ancient world, you couldn't take out a loan. You couldn't deal with your financial troubles in various ways. You couldn't just take on credit. You very often have to sell things so they, they could sell their inheritance that God had given them. That's a way to get out of your trouble. And you could even sell yourself into indentured service in order to take care of your troubles. The problem is if you did that to a foreigner, if you sold your land or sold yourself to a foreigner, foreigner, you had no guarantees to ever get that inheritance back, to never get, ever get yourself back. And so the relatives of that person who was getting into financial trouble, they had an obligation to get that person out of trouble, to redeem them, to redeem their land, to redeem them from slavery. And so what the Lord's saying here is he's their kinsman redeemer. He is their kinsman. He is their, their relative who is obligated now to rescue them, to give them their land that's in jeopardy because they're slaves in Egypt and to rescue them from that slavery. And he does it with an outstretched arm, like a strong man who rolls up his sleeve and shows his bicep and tries, I'd do it, but it, it wouldn't have the same effect. They're showing, he's showing his muscle. He's going to put his might on display. He's going to do that with great acts of judgment, which, of course, is a reference to the plagues. But notice they're acts of judgment. What God is going to do in Egypt is not simply so he can rescue his people. It is so he can punish Egypt for their mistreatment of his people. They have done something wrong, and they're going to be punished for it. They're going to pay for what they've done to his people. Because that is what's right. And then comes the covenantal promise. You know, this two-sided thing that he says, I I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's a covenant formula. You see it throughout the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over again. This is what God wants to do, is doing, has done. Now the question is, if God has already said Israel is his firstborn son, and here he's saying he's, he's their kinsman, then hasn't he already made them his people? Isn't he already their God? Well, I thought Douglas Stewart was helpful in pointing to the, 
what follows in verse 7 as a clue to when this would actually be officially the case. He says that this is going to be true after they're brought out. That's when they will know that Yahweh is their God who has brought them out, past tense, from under the burdens of Egypt. So this is going to happen after he's been brought out, after they've been brought out of Egypt, after the Exodus. And that fits the progression of these promises. You find these promises in a chronological order. First comes the rescue. Then comes making them as people. Then comes giving them the promised land. So you have this chronological progression, the Exodus, Mount Sinai, and the promised land or the conquest. So it's at Mount Sinai where he is going to officially make them his people. When he, it's true that the covenant promises to the forefathers had pointed to the fact that God was going to make Israel his covenant people, but that wouldn't formally, truly, officially be the case until God established his covenant at Mount Sinai. And after that, he would then keep his promise to give them the promised land. The land, he says, he swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's when it would become their possession. So this is an amazing promise. I mean, if you think about what he's promising, these slaves who, who are going through these very difficult times, these seven statements with three main promises, you, I mean, it's a wonderful thing, right, to hear what God is going to do. They heard it before. This is not news. They'd heard this in chapter 4. and In chapter 4 and verse 31, it says, they believed and they worshiped God. So what do they do here? Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Word, or the phrase, broken spirit, more literally, it's the shortness of spirit. Similar phrase, short spirits, used in Proverbs 14, 29, mentioned alongside long nostrils. So you have these two options, short spirit, long nostrils. Long nostrils is usually translated to somebody who is, uh, what's the phrasing I'm looking for? Uh, they're long and um, they're patient, but thinking of, I can't think of the word. I didn't put it in here. They're slow to anger. That's the word. Slow to anger. They're long of nostrils. Kind of the idea is that it's a long time before there's that burst of air out of their nostrils and anger and that snort. It takes a long time to get them to snort in anger. Well, the opposite of that is having a short spirit, a short breath, you could say, you know, where it's easy to get you to sigh. You're upset. They had a short spirit. They were impatient. They were done with all this talk. They They were going through this harsh slavery. That's legitimate. It was a difficult slavery, but they're done hearing about promises. No more promises, God. We just want you to take away the problem. That's all they were ready to accept from God. And I get it. I mean, I have no doubt I would feel the same way. My natural state, I'm not going to be long-nostrilled. I'm going to be short-spirited. I'm going to tell God, I I don't want to hear it. Just just take the problem away. But notice God's response. (laughs) All he does in response to their not listening to him is he turns to Moses and he gives his plan. Here's what you do, Moses. Here's what you're going to do now. He tells him in verse 11, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. He just moves on to the next thing. But Moses responds similarly to the people. I mean, they heard God's promises and his past and 
And they weren't having it. Well, Moses is hearing this plan now, and he's like, no, this is not going to work. He says, basically, look, you, you saw what happened. When I talk to my own people, they're not listening. How in the world is, Mo, is, is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And then he adds, for I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses had learned something with his encounter with his son and his uncircumcised son. He learned that circumcision matters to God. If you're uncircumcised, you're disqualified. Moses knew that he was technically disqualified when his son was uncircumcised. So he uses terminology to basically say, I'm disqualified. You shouldn't use me. Look, it hasn't worked. I, went, I, did, I did what you told me to do. I talked to the people. They didn't listen. I'm disqualified. He thought, of all people, God's going to be the one to recognize uncircumcised lips when he sees them. But just look at the way that God's been acting in all of this. At no point, again, is God surprised. He doesn't respond by saying, oh, oh this, is, this is new, this is different. I'm going to have to do something different now. He just moves on to the next thing. The people reject Moses' word. Okay, Moses, this is what you're going to do now. And it's not to reassure the people. It's not to respond to that problem. It's to do the next thing in God's plan. So there's not a hint that God's actions or his word were the wrong thing, as though it didn't work. And so God should have done something else. He shouldn't have given his people that message. It didn't work. No. That is what the people needed to hear, even if they weren't willing to receive it. Just because they didn't respond well doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing. And just because they didn't respond well doesn't mean it's not the right thing for us too. When we hear God's word repeated to us, his promises, while we're going through difficulty, that's what we need to hear. Consider the way that this passage is similar. This message is similar to another message from God in Jeremiah 31. That's where God announces the new covenant. And just like you have here this fourfold statement of I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, there you have a fourfold mention of declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. And just like you have here this mention of a promise that I will be your God and you will be my people there with the new covenant, he says the same thing. I will be your God, you will be my people. The problem with the old covenant was that the people broke it. It didn't have a heart to do what God wanted. And that's what would happen with the new covenant. So where do we see the new covenant implemented? In the New Testament. Through Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus... Speaking of this beforehand, in Luke twenty-two twenty, sitting there with his disciples at that Passover meal that they share, he says that this cup represents his blood. But specifically, he says there, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Paul used that same terminology when he talked to the largely Gentile church in Corinth. He said, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is what we remember. And he referred to himself as a minister of the new covenant in his second letter to that church. So when is this new covenant reality finally fulfilled in the end? When all the redeemed of Christ, those that redeemed by Christ, are with God in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the way it's described in Revelation 21.3. It says, behold, this is at the end. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So the message here 
to the old covenant people is pointing to the ultimate message to us. It's new covenant people. A people that includes both Jewish people and Gentiles. Israel and all nations. So that means that as we wait for our salvation, our final complete salvation, just as Israel was waiting here, we need what God did for them. We need him to do that for us. We need to hear his message. We need to hear it repeatedly. Notice again how this is, this is not a different message than they had already heard. It's largely the same. So how many of you have ever wondered why we have to hear the same thing over and over again? Don't raise your hand. Why do we have to keep hearing the same message over and over again? You might have also noticed here that what we do is we just go through the Bible. So if you hear something over and over again, it's because God is telling us it over and over again. I've heard Christians actually say, they've heard the Bible. You know, now they want something more. They want something different. I actually heard a Christian say that as he was explaining his choice to go to a new church where they no longer, there was a church, his old church would go through the Bible passage by passage. The new church, they would talk about practical things. It's like, that's what I need now. I get it. I understand. There are times when the repetitious nature of the Bible seems inefficient. We need to hear God speak to our situation now. We need God to speak to our relationships, our marriages, our finances, our parenting. Look, the Bible does talk about those things. It just doesn't talk about them with the the regularity that modern people seem to want. But the problem is in the Bible. When we don't want to listen to the message that God gives us, it's because we too have short spirits. We don't want God to change us in the manner that he actually wants to change us with a timing that he has to change us. We want it to be at our timing. We want to be able to go to one message and hear somebody fix our marriage in one message. We want them to fix our parenting in one message. We need them to address the specific problem that we have and to fix it in the timetable that we have for them. Otherwise, it's yada, yada, yada. I mean, all this other God talk. It's just, it's not practical. We cannot be short-spirited with God. It is natural. But we have to understand that his ways are best. He has a reason why he tells us what he tells us. It is not good to treat the Bible like a therapeutic how-to book. The reason we want to do that is because that's what our culture tells us we need, not because it's what we actually need. So we need to hear his message. We need to hear what he tells us repeatedly, not what we crave, what our itching ears crave to hear. We need to hear the repeated word. We need to hear repeatedly what he has done, what he will do, what he's called us to do. It may seem like the same old thing. We have to keep hearing about God's past, his promises, his plan. We have to do that. Why? Because that's what the inspired message from our Father, that's, that's the inspired message from our Father, that's used by the indwelling Spirit 
to make us into the image of Christ. This is his program. He gets to set the terms. And he knows what's best. This is his design. So the goal isn't a quick fix. The goal is a complete transformation. So when you're seeing the working out of the cross that you're, you're told to pick up and carry, that's when we need to be reminded that God, our God, is the same God of the Exodus. He's the God who established a covenant with Israel, and he's a God who established a covenant with us through his son. And he knows about the cross that we have. And he has remembered his covenant. And we need to be reminded that God will deliver us fully, finally one day. We can count on that. That he is our kinsman redeemer and he's going to finish what he started. And he's going to do that one day in a new creation. We will be his people. He will be our God. We will enjoy our promised land. New heavens, new earth. And we need to be reminded right now that we are called to make disciples. And that's an inward and outward reality. It's outward that we are called to live out this gospel. We're called to tell people about it with the hope that more disciples will join us. And then we're also, inwardly, we are commanded to gather, to continually be a part of each other's lives so that we can build each other up to be more like Jesus, that's the command. That's the plan. We need to keep hearing that. When we're suffering, that's exactly when we need to be reminded. So that we don't respond the way the world is encouraging us to respond. So that we're directed to what God wants for us and not directed to what the world wants for us. Not directed to a self-centered, therapeutic kind of direction where we're emphasizing self-expression and personal fulfillment we don't want to even turn the bible into something that contributes toward that so god's response to our suffering is to show us the consistency of his message that's not all this passage talks about it also mentions the continuity of god's method and we see that in a genealogy in the second half of this passage. So, even though the second half of the passage is more verses, it's not going to take us as long, so don't look at your watch and get worried. Now, I am not trying to say in covering this that every part of Scripture is equally as profitable or equally as important. We're not going to say that. We don't say that. But it is all profitable. And it is all important. It does play together. It does work together, all these different parts, to give us a message. And so uh, as I was studying this, this passage and studying this genealogy, I was kind of surprised at, at what it pointed to. Um, it takes us from the patriarchs to the priesthood. So I'm going to let you in on a little something about myself that you may know. Uh, probably even it's apparent as I've been preaching. I love details. <laughs> I love details. This is even how I enjoy basketball games. You know, some people watch basketball games, and the only thing that they think about is the score. You know, they enjoy seeing their team score or their team keep the other team from scoring. I I like that, of course, but 
I love seeing some of the intricacies, some of the, the details. I love it when somebody is recognizing that there's an open lane. And they deviate from the play, they slash to the lane, they cut to the basket, and I love it when the person with the ball is savvy enough to recognize that and to feed them through traffic with a bounce pass. And they get the ball and they score. And even if they miss, sometimes I still have this joy that that person actually saw that and they they put that together. It's a beautiful thing. So I love the details. And I feel that way with Scripture. There are all these beautiful details in the text that sometimes at first they look haphazard. You know, they, they don't make sense at first when you just look at them. And then you study them. And you realize what's going on. And it, it really is neat to see the way that they work together, to see the way that they, they actually convey a message. So I actually love studying genealogies. <laughs> it's not everybody, I know. But I hope you can just for a moment enjoy this genealogy with me. First of all, this genealogy is framed by verse 13 and verses 26 and 27. Basically, in those verses, it's saying something very, very similar. It's, it's kind of a repetition of what's already been said. But the repetition is just to kind of bring things into perspective so that we understand this genealogy is not an insertion. doesn't make sense. It's deliberately placed here. So it's... It mentions at the beginning and the end this order, Moses and Aaron. It mentions their name in that order. That makes sense because Moses is more prominent, right? But this, this uh, genealogy is actually about Aaron more than Moses. So it begins the way you would expect a genealogy to begin. It, it goes through the tribes of Israel. It begins with Reuben and then Simeon and then Levi. And, and up to Levi, it also listed out these other sons, who were actually included in the list of charter members that we mentioned in in Genesis 46. The members of the people of Jacob's family who went down to Egypt. So from verse 14 to 16, all of the people listed there were alive when Jacob and his family went into Egypt. And then there's a change at verse 16. Mentions at verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. And then it lists the heads under the headings the sons of Reuben in verse 14 and the sons of Simeon in verse 15. But when it gets to Levi in verse 16, it it changes to say, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. And that word generations is the same word used throughout Genesis to mark off the different stories. These are the generations. So something more significant is happening with Levi. He's being set apart. And at the end of verse 16, for the first time, it gives us his age span. tells us, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. So Levi is being set apart. Then in verse 17, it begins to list the next generation. It gives Levi's grandsons. Now, if you looked at the census at the beginning of the book of Numbers, you'd find these same names listed out as the founders of the various clans of Levi. So these names are significant. They're, they're describing, basically they're telling where Levi, or sorry, where Moses and and Aaron were in Levi's family. You could compare it to a, a geography of the U.S. You, know, you, you could compare the, the people of Israel as a whole to the, the country, the U.S. And then you could compare um, the tribal leader, Levi, to the U.S. state. And then you could compare the person under that, the father under that, as a county. And then the towns within the county are the clan leaders. 
So just like I could explain where I live by saying that I live in Ohio, specifically Clark County, and more specifically, New Carlisle. They're saying in this genealogy that Moses and Aaron are located in Jacob's family. They're located in the tribe of Levi, under the forefather of Kohath, and under the clan leader of Amram. And you'll notice in the text that those are the only names that are given the lifespans. Tells us that Levi lived 137 years, Kohath for 133 years, and Amram for 137 years. Kind of zeroing in on this line. It does mention other clan leaders from the other forefathers, and then it it concludes this section with the same words found in verse 16, really repeated essentially in verse 19. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. And then at verse 20, there's a new addition. For the first time, it mentions a wife bearing children. It says, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. After mentioning Amram's age, it goes on to list other children from these other clan leaders of Kohath. The only name we really recognize is Korah. If you are familiar with the stories of the Pentateuch, you'd know he's the one who's going to rebel against Moses later on in Numbers. And from that, you can assume that these names are basically listing out important people in, in Moses and Aaron's generation. And then at verse 23, we come to Aaron, not Moses. And again, something new is added. We've heard about Amram's wife, but with Aaron's wife, we hear Elisheva's father and her brother. Both of them are significant people in Judah's tribe. These are important leaders. So basically, Aaron's kids are, they're significant children. They come from very important families. Then verse 24 lists the next generation for Korah's family, and only Korah's family. So again, kind of giving us a heads up that Korah's going to play a part later on. But then we hear about Aaron's son, Eliezer, his wife's lineage. Doesn't mention her name, but does mention that. And then we hear about Aaron's grandson, Phineas. And that's when the genealogy comes to an end with Phineas. Basically repeating what it began with in verse 14, but only for Levi. Now, if you're following that, you're kind of starting to do math. Maybe, maybe you're not doing that. But you might figure out that there's a slight problem in this genealogy. Based on what it's given us, Moses and Aaron would be the fourth generation from Levi. Exodus says that, that the people of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. You can't even take the numbers that were given and reach 430, right? Because for the one, Levi and Kohath's years, you can't count all of them because they're alive when they go into Egypt. So part of those years wouldn't count towards 430. And also in a genealogy, when it gives the years of a person's life, unless those fathers all had their kids at the last year of their life, you can't just add up those numbers. Even if you add Moses and Aaron's age at the Exodus, 80 and 83 respectively, so that's not going to add up. So what's going on? Uh, well, before I say that, the other reality is when you go to Numbers 3.28, it gives this census. And, and under the census, it lists out or it mentions the total number of males, one month old or older, for the clans of Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. 
the sons of Kohath, it gives the number of 8,600. If Moses is truly the son of Amram, and you divide that number of 8,000 by four, just as an approximation, then Moses would have 2,150 brothers and nephews, even if you threw in grandnephews. I mean, that's, not an, that's, that's too many people for that generation. So, so what's going on? I thought Dwayne Garrett was helpful in explaining this. He says, we must realize that we are reading an ancient book in which things are described according to the standards of ancient people. The text is not trying to deceive us. Even the most casual reader can see that Moses cannot literally be the grandson of Levi if the sojourn lasted 430 years. What, the, what this genealogy is doing is it's connecting Moses and Aaron with that generation that really defined the members of the family, that patriarchal generation. It's connecting them. Basically, it's saying Moses and Aaron are as integral to the people as those patriarchs were. They're sort of adopted into that status. So the other side of that is the people that were, were going to continue to have an impact on Israel was not going to be Moses' descendants. The only time that they get mentioned is actually for something pretty bad in, in Judges. It's going to be the priesthood. It's going to be Phineas. It's going to be Eliezer first and then Phineas. So Phineas is even mentioned in to the time of the Judges. He had an impact with Israel. So what this is doing is it's connecting these stories for the readers. person reading this would be able to see that this is the same God of the patriarchs. He's the same God of the Exodus. He's the same God that they now experience through his work with the priests. So God chose Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, he chose Jacob's children. Seventy people, historically, this historic moment, they went down to Egypt. Now there's an equally historic moment happening. Moses and Aaron represent that historic moment. Later on, the reality of God's work is seen through Aaron's descendants, through the priests, through Eliezer and Phineas. They're the people that God would use. So God is doing the same thing. His methodology hasn't changed. He works through flawed people. But there's a connection to those people. He is the same God who rescued the people of Egypt. The, the, the same God of Moses and Aaron, rather, are, are this, is the same God of the patriarchs who sojourned in Canaan. And he's the same God of the priests who then ministered in Canaan. So the point I, I see from this genealogy is that this is a historical book. That God's message is grounded in history. You see that consistently. But a genealogy is tying these stories to history and saying, this is, this is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a good story that encourages us. This is a story that actually took place and we're connected to it. God is historical. His work is historical. We're, we're at a different stage in history, but we're still connected to this. So, even as we hear this message repeatedly, we need to hear it as not just a message that's supposed to be inspiring, but a message of what truly happened. When these difficulties happen to us, we realize that real, genuine difficulties happened to God's people before. They always happen to God's people. 
And yet God's people is preserved. Always preserved. Through time, no matter what comes their way, they're always preserved. Now, how are we connected to this people? Well, in the genealogies of both Luke and Matthew, there are two names mentioned that are also mentioned here. It's the only people from Judah's tribe that are mentioned here. Minadab and Nashon. They're in the line of descendants that lead to Jesus. Jesus is, again, the one who established the new covenant for us. It's the same story. We're part of that story. By faith, we belong to this new people. This new covenant people. Those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and follow him, that's the evidence of true faith. Following Jesus. Always his stipulation to any would-be disciple. He never says, just trust in me and hey, it's a good idea if you follow. He says, anybody who wants to be my disciple, follow me. It's predicated on turning from your sin and believing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But those are the ones who are connected to the story, who have the salvation that's greater even than the salvation of the Exodus. Is that you? Are you connected to this story? Do you trust in Jesus? Are you following him? If you are, one of the things that we do as we follow him is we join together and listen to his message repeatedly. Until he gives us what he's promised. That's how he is making us into diamonds. Through this pressure. That's his way. Join me in prayer. Father, I know that I am very prone to think I know better. It is so easy to imagine that we could do this better. It's so easy for us to discount the things that we hear as superfluous or unnecessary because, well, if you would just do this, then our problems would be solved. And we would never say it. I know that. I Don't vocalize it. It just comes in thoughts. Pray that we would We would admit that about ourselves. Admit that the reason why your word doesn't captivate us as it should sometimes is because we really don't think it's that important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard it before. And again, we would would never be so direct as to say that, but help us. I pray that you would bring it directly to us, that you would confront us with the reality of our short spirit. That we would recognize it's a problem. And we we realize we can't fix it. So even as we're confronted with it, she would give us the grace that we, we, we confess it to you and that we truly believe that you can make us into what you want to make us. You can make us into the image of Christ. 
through your spirit, through his word, and through his activity in us. Help us to demonstrate that faith. To not content ourselves with some nice how-to ideas about how we can make ourselves into what we want ourselves to be. But that we would submit to you and be transformed in the manner you want to transform us in. Even if it seems inefficient to us. Even if it seems like it's not really applicable. Pray that you convict our hearts and that you would continue by your word shape us from one degree of glory to the next into the image of your son. Pray that anyone here who does not know you by your son would would hear that truth hear the reality this good news about Jesus know that he is a real person who really lived on this planet really died really rose again and that they'd be confronted with that reality now as opposed to when they will see him one day They would turn and trust in him.